Rebounds pass comes into Jordan. Here's Michael at the foul line. A shot on Elo. Good! The Bulls win! Playoffs? We'll talk about playoffs? You kidding me? I'm supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. Hello? You play to win the game. They're down to the 20. All the band is out on the field. He's going to go into the end zone. I don't believe what I just saw. One of the all-time shockers. Hi, everybody. I'm Mitch Goldich, and welcome to episode three of my very creatively named Mitch Goldich podcast. My guest today is a New York Times bestselling author several times over. He's a former writer for Sports Illustrated and just recently announced that his next book will be about Brett Favre. His name is Jeff Perlman. Hello, Jeff Perlman. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? Good, but I think you need to change the name of the podcast. Do I? I actually spent a lot of time uh, brainstorming and didn't land on anything that we liked, so we just went with this. I got one for you right now. Go for it. Something like uh, the coolest podcast on earth. And if you don't think so, I'll kick your ass. See, nobody had called it that before. If I can attribute mm-hmm. that quote to you, then I totally. might go with it. Done. Okay. But I want fifty so, percent. I want fifty percent of all your podcast profits. Okay. <laughs> so so far that's zero. But uh, yeah, I'm good with that. All right, cool. So let me take this uh, from the top again. Hi, everybody. I'm Mitch Golich, and welcome to episode three of This Is the Greatest Podcast Ever. And if you don't think so, I'll kick your ass. Says Jeff Perlman. My guest today Very is nice. Jeff Perlman. How was that? <laughs> Very well said. Yeah. All right. I, yeah, this has improved already. I just yeah. I have to change the logo, but we'll work on that. Um, so anyway, uh, not why I had you on, but while I have you, uh, Brett Favre, you just announced that uh, somewhat recently. Have you talked much about the Favre book? Are you, are you allowed to answer some questions about it if I have them? I can, I can be a little vague and I can talk a little about it. I'm not you know, I put it out there, and then I was like, ah, maybe I shouldn't have, but I did, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I'm not going to – I mean, yeah, fire away, but I may not be able to say that much. Because I – the truth of the matter is, is I just like – I'm in the middle of writing it. I'm literally – like literally you called and I was writing it. And, uh, you know, you're so absorbed by the topic, and you're really into it, and you're, you haven't put anything out there yet, and you don't want to put anything out there yet because the thing's not coming out for, you know, another whatever, nine months. Um, but I can talk a little. So okay. go ahead. All right, so I'll ask uh, – and some of these are general and, and probably apply to this and some of the other books that you've done before mm-hmm. too. So um, so the first question is just why, why Brett Favre? What makes you pick him as the subject for a book? Well, it's not that different than the other – you know, the first book I wrote was a biography of the 86 Mets, and um, that's the only book I wrote, I think, where the topic was like handed to me, where an agent actually – I'd never written a book. agent came to me and said, how about the 86 Mets? And I said, yeah, it's great. I'll do it. Um, I didn't know anything, you know? And uh, over the years, over a decade of, of writing books, um, I've kind of got a system down of what topics kind of work for me. And, and it's basically like three categories. Uh, number one, is it something that's never been done? You know, not obviously there have been books written about Brett Favre, just like there are books about Walter Payton and books about whatever the 90s Cowboys. But they're generally kind of thin and quickies and maybe they come after a Super Bowl or something like that. So has there never been a definitive work done? Um, number two does it have a chance of selling? You know, you never know if it's going to sell or not. You really don't. Um, I wrote a biography of Barry Bonds that I, I thought was going to be just my huge seller. And it came out, ended up coming out two weeks after Game of Shadows. And that just killed me. So, but, but I had a chance, you know, and it still sold okay. So you figure a topic like Favre, just like Walter Payton or Barry Bonds, they have a shot. Um, and the number three thing is, is it something I could do 
I could devote two years of my life to and not want to put a gun to my head, you know, at, by the end of it. Like, is it something that will hold my interest? And, you know, Favre, iconic, interesting. Uh, he's from Mississippi, which alone makes it interesting to me because I find that state so fascinating. Um, so I just thought there was a lot there. You know, I, th- I thought he would be a very – and I thought the timing was right. You know, that's the other thing. Like, you couldn't do a Brett Favre biography – at the end of his career, because people are so tired of the whole, is he going to retire? Is he not going to retire? He's coming back. He's not coming back. I just thought at the end, there was real fire fatigue. And I think, you know, distance makes the heart grow fonder. And I think people are kind of, I think people are over that and are just kind of appreciate what he was as a football player. Mm -hmm. So then as far as the timeline goes, how long ago did you start working on this? And do you know any idea how far, how long it'll be before it actually comes out? Well, it's supposed to come out next uh, fall. So fall 2016, which is always annoying because you, you work your ass off on something, you know, and you devote these years to it. And then you actually have to wait. You know, you want it to be like, all right, I'm done. Let's see it. But it doesn't work that way because there's so much, you know, editing, uh, you know, distribution, cover design, little things, pictures inside, blah, 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 a million different things, legal check. Um, so it's not coming out until next year. And I've worked on it now for, I would say, about a year and a half. I kind of started it very shortly after Showtime, my Laker book came out. So about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, cause I remember you wrote, uh, for Bleacher Report, that piece about him coming back the day that they, uh, I guess they actually yeah. retired his number at the game this Thanksgiving, but they, what they inducted him into the, the ring of honor and they had the whole ceremony for him at Lambeau. And right. I remember you wrote a good piece about that whole weekend, but you didn't actually talk to him. And I don't even, I don't even think there was a quote from him in the piece so is, is there, will you, have you, I'm sure you've reached out to him, but do you think you'll be talking to Brett before this comes out or will this just be based on interviews with other people who know him? Uh, I don't fully know yet because I'm still reporting it, believe it or not. Um, it's, uh, I just don't know. I don't know. I don't have a great answer. When I was, uh, when I was following him in Green Bay, I did not, uh, you know, it was more actually, it was supposed to be the, the piece was a diary of kind of the weekend, right? And it was more about, as I pitched it, was more about sort of all the craziness that was going on, uh, the people around, the fans who were coming out. Was he forgiven? Was he not forgiven? Um, how people were responding to his presence. Uh, so, so that was kind of the way I pitched that story anyway. But, um, you know, one of the challenges of a book, I mean, I've had this many times, is you're writing a biography of somebody, and it's not your goal is to write the definitive portrait of a person. Um, it's not to, you know, write a an ode to that person. And it's not to write a takedown to just write sort of the life story. And you kind of find, especially in modern journalism, that people want odes, you know, they want to make sure that it's all about the glory and all about the triumphs and, and never about the struggles. So that actually makes it more complicated. I, I think getting people to talk to you uh, in 2015, when there's so many filters uh, from, from the PR filters to Twitter, to Facebook, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so, I guess my answer is I don't know, um, but I've interviewed well over uh, 600 people by now. So, wow, six. How does 600 compare to some of the other books you've done? Uh, it's right there with Sweetness. My Walter Payton book is my uh, as my uh, my high. I think I might have gone a little higher with Sweetness, but you know, it's just uh, it's kind of one of my loves is finding, reporting, digging, tracking, trying to uh, trying to get absolutely everything about a subject and learning what makes a person tick. Yeah, because with a guy like Favre, I mean, there's been so much written and said about him over the years. So is that 
the the goal is looking for things that people don't already know or just looking for a million different people's perspectives on something like what's when you're going into an interview and let's say it's an old teammate or somebody else or whoever and you get them for 20 minutes what's sort of the goal going in do you do you come in hoping for one specific anecdote or you just kind of talk and see where it goes you want the, the main thing you want is fresh material right mm-hmm. like and it's very interesting what happens in journalism and i get it and i'm not i'm not actually criticizing anyone because I've, I've i've done this too is if you're covering an athlete we'll use five as an example but it could be anybody a narrative kind of develops over time right uh, he's gritty. He's this. He's that. You know, a narrative develops, and it becomes this thing, almost like this living, breathing thing. That this is how we're going to identify this guy by right? these characteristics and these traits. Um, and we have these ten stories to go back to that we use over and over again to uh, verify what we're saying or to back up what we're saying about him. And to me, one of the things you want to do as a uh, as a biographer, um, I don't want to sound stuffy, but you know, you're writing a biography of someone. One of the things you want to do is break through that, you know, because people aren't that simple and people can't be defined by two, three, four stories or simple narratives. You know, we all have our, as I always say, we all have our crap, you know, we all have our things. We all have our struggles. We all have our difficulties. We all have that kid in high school who really got under our skin. We all have that girl or boy who we really loved. who didn't love us back. You know, we have all these things um, that make us who we are. And, and, you know, I, I just think your job when you're writing a book, when you're devoting 200,000 words to a subject, is to get past all the surface stuff uh, and really dig in. So when I interview people, you know, I rarely will ask about obvious events. You know, I rarely ask things that have been covered a million times because I feel like there's so much more out there that you're trying to get. Does that make but, sense? Yeah, but then, I mean, you can't ignore that. Like, you know, the game after his father died and, and well, no, 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 right. of course. obviously has of to course. be, yeah. And wait, that's a great example. That's a perfect example. Yeah, like, that's like the far you want to do, story, yeah. Right, and it was huge. So what you want to do with something like that is you want to get all the things people didn't talk about or you want to find out the little intricacies. Or one thing about pro sports is generally the same people are interviewed over and over again, right? So example, Walter Payton. I wrote a book about Walter Payton. If you read all the articles about Walter Payton, the guys who were quoted from the Bears would be Jim McMahon, maybe Matt Suey, maybe you got Willie Galt, maybe you got Richard Dent. Well, he played with 600 guys throughout his career, as did Brett Favre, as did Dwight Gooden and Darryl Strawberry. So, you know, you can write about a game like whatever, the 03 game on Monday Night Football against the Raiders, and just find the guys who were never asked about it, the guys who had little moments, you know, the guys who sort of, you know, um, Maybe there are guys on that team, we'll just use five as an example, maybe there are guys on that team who also lost their parents. And maybe that moment hit them in a way that it didn't other guys, but no one ever bothered to talk to them. So it's sort of the reason you call everybody and you, you try to get the perspectives of, of tons of different people. So you're right, you can't ignore events. You can't, I mean, you can't write the Brett Favre story without talking about that game. You can't write the Walter Payton story without talking about the 86 Super Bowl. You can write about the 86 Mets without talking about Buckman. Um, but you at least when you go about those events, you try to uh, approach them uniquely. Mm-hmm. So then back to what you said about uh, trying to write a complete picture and not an ode, because uh, I know your Walter Payton book and, and you know, you've 
I know you've talked about this before, talk about people being asked the same questions, but you've talked about this, the reaction in Chicago to the Peyton book, and that a lot of people were upset with parts of it. So is that a, do you think about that as you're writing, that such a big audience naturally would just be Packers fans and Favre fans, and that, you know, if you are including any any blemishes or negatives about them, that those parts won't be received well? I mean, do you think at all about the reaction to it as you're putting it together, or do you kind of just do the book that you want to do and then say, okay, people will read it and, and accept the book for, for what I put together. That's a great question. I, uh, I really try to do the book I want to do. You, you basically like, I kind of learned, I feel like I, all of a sudden I got old in this business and I kind of learned, I can say I learned a long time ago that you can never think about your audience. It sounds weird, right? But you can't write for your audience and you can't write for book reviewers or critics or Packer fans who love Beth Farber whatever, Bears fans who hate Brett Favre, you just have to write the book that you would want to write. Um, the one thing I think I've, I've learned through the years um, is sort of, uh, you know, you, you have to be sensitive. Um, you know, you're writing about someone and it's going to be on paper and, you know, it's going to last for a long time and it's going to become, you hope, sort of the book on record on someone. And I do think what you have to do is when you're talking about subjects that uh, are kind of sticky or uncomfortable, you really have to sort of weigh them and try to figure out how much, how much weight um, you should apply to those in the book. Meaning um, Walter Payton being a great guy, Walter Payton giving millions of dollars to charity and Walter Payton cheating one time on his wife. This is just a, a, this is a fake example, but kind of what I mean. Um, they're probably not equal. You know, if a guy gives a million dollars to charity and he cheats once on his wife, they're not equal. You know, I, I don't even know which way is more and which way is less, but they're not equal. So when you're writing a book on someone, it's not that you're afraid to write things, but you really have to measure what you're writing and decide how important is this to the narrative? Uh, how, what does it say about him? Does it say anything about him? Um, how did people respond to it at the time? What did it mean to his family? So, uh, so it's not like I think about what other people, uh, what readers are going to say. But I do think, how does it reflect on the person, and is it reflecting on that person accurately? Mm -hmm. So things like, and, and not to, but like the, with the text message thing when Brett played for the Jets, like received a ton of attention because it happened in 2011 or 12 or whatever year it was. Whereas if that was in the early 90s, you know, maybe it wouldn't mm -hmm. wouldn't have happened or covered as much. So like, are you wet? You're just weighing lots of things like that about Brett Favre as well as you're trying to put this together. Yeah, I mean, you have to. Yeah. You, you you just have to. And what does that mean? So it's not all right. So that was like publicly humiliating for Brett Favre, right? Yeah. Um, and we all know that it was humiliating. It was a horrible, horrible moment. Um, and I kind of, I'm not saying I'm like perfect, right? Like, but what you're trying to do as a writer is uh, is try to figure out like, all right, so you have this embarrassing moment. How did that impact him? How did it impact his family? Did it? Does it reflect on him? Um, in a bigger way? Was it just a stupid mistake he made? Was it a misunderstanding? Was it a, a, a gotcha moment? Uh, was it him at his worst? You know, so you're just, you, you, you're taking something that was profoundly embarrassing and pathetic, and you're trying to figure out what it means and how it relates to this guy's life. And that's kind of the challenge of it all. Okay, so when you put together a book like this, what's your favorite part of the whole process and the whole, uh, you know, from the beginning that coming up with the idea to the day it's on shelves or an Amazon, what's your favorite part about the whole thing? There's a couple, but, uh, 
you know, I love digging into a person's life. Like I love, I love when I land in Mississippi and I'm driving through some town I've never, never been in Mississippi and I'm stopping at a roadside milkshake stand and I'm about to interview whoever it may be. You know, I love that stuff. Like I love, love that stuff. It's the best. And you can ask questions that no one else can ask. You're allowed to. Um, and you're digging and it's appropriate, you know, and, and I love being in the small town library and finding records that you never knew existed. Um, I also love whatever, a month and a half or two months before the book comes out when a copy arrives in the mail, like a real copy with a hardcover, uh, you know, and, and your name on it. And, and it's just thrilling because you work so hard on this thing and there it is, you know, and then you're just terrified to death for the next <laughs> couple of weeks. But it's exciting at that moment. Terrified. I mean, do you you, uh, you read a lot of reviews and what people say, and, and do you pay attention to a lot of that kind of stuff? Um. Yeah. Of course. I mean, you know, I, you kind of have to. I'm not terrified about reviews, though. Um, it's more like uh, you just want to do it right. You know, you just want to get it right. That's the number one thing. Like you work so hard on it, and you want to get it right. And there's a lot of things you could get wrong. That's a thing. Like. This stuff isn't easy. You're taking 600 interviews. You're mixing them with 10,000 articles, um, video clips, audio clips. I mean, it's a million things merging into this one singular item. And there's, it's just hard and it's daunting, you know? And sometimes I feel like a total goober when I complain or whine how hard it is to write a book because people are, you know, I'm so fortunate to be able to do what I love to do. Uh, but at the same time, like it is a mental beatdown. It is really hard. So when the thing comes out and you're, you're finally done with it and you're happy and you're proud, you just are also equally nervous because you don't know, you just don't know how it's going to go. You have no idea. The most, I mean, for me personally, I've had some amazing highs, you know, your first bestseller, uh, your highest point on the bestseller list, you know, whatever, great reviews or whatever. But I've also had horrible lows where again, Game of Shadows comes out two weeks before my bonds book or Mike Wilbon on ESPN without reading sweetness, rip sweetness, you know, and, and it's just, there's a lot of emotions at play when you write a book for me. at least. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's uh, change gears a little bit because the books come out every two, three years, whatever it is. And then in the meantime, uh, I also really enjoy following you on Twitter and you blog a ton uh, on your website and share those. So I wanted to ask you about that a little bit because um, it feels like – I don't know if you blog every single day. It feels like almost every day you're sharing new stuff. Is that something that's important to you to keep doing that? Why do you, uh, why do you enjoy blogging so much? Um, well, you know, I started it just as an event. You know, like I started in 2008, and I just said, I'm just going to you know, write. I wasn't I – wasn't, uh, I was just doing books. I wasn't affiliated with anyone anymore. I just said, I'm just going to write. And, uh, you know, I would write about weird random stuff like – going to the bathroom and seeing blood or why boogers are shaped like they are. And sometimes I'd write about sports. A lot of times I'd go off on politics, you know, whatever. And slowly I kind of built up a following. Um, and I, I guess now uh, it's weird that people kind of read it, but they, they keep reading it. And, and it's just like uh, when you're writing about the same thing every day and reporting about the same thing, it's nice to take a break and vent about whatever you want. You know, uh, like today I just wrote something. I'm sitting in a coffee shop in LA and I heard Michael Bublé's cover of all I want for Christmas is you by Mariah Carey. And I just can't imagine why anybody would cover that song. It's a relatively new song. It's like the best Christmas song ever. 
there's nothing Michael Bublé could add to that song, and his version sucks. So I just thought, I'm going to write a blog post about Michael Bublé and why he covered this stupid song. Um, so I just kind of, I guess it's kind of enjoying an event for me. Okay, yeah, and and you touched on that. I was going to bring it up too, that it seems like there's a huge mix where you'll write about something like that, like Michael Bublé, and then you also, I, you know, I follow a lot of sports writers on Twitter, and it seems like you, as much as anyone, are willing to talk about much more serious topics and you've written a lot about terrorism and gun control and the drought in California and is that just something you just feel comfortable doing or think more people should do or is that just kind of the way you are that because you know there's that whole like stick to sports movement and some people like if uh, you know if, if a sports writer wants to talk about something else in the world you know they'll, they'll get backlash and say oh you know I follow you for football like shut up about everything else is that something yeah. you've you've dealt with or care about or, or you just kind of ignore it and plow through or do you get a positive response when you do that kind of stuff? Well, I think about that all the time because I'm sure I've lost a lot of readers uh, because I'm pretty I'm a pretty liberal guy and I you know I sports fans are a lot of conservative sports fans and I I do tweet angrily at times. And, you know, especially during election season, it's stuff drives me crazy. Um, but you know what? Like, it's kind of, it drives me crazy when people say, just stick to sports, stay in your zone. I hate that stuff. I hate it when they apply it to conservative sports writers, and they're certainly out there. I hate it when they apply it to me. Um, I just think it's a vent. You know, it's, a, it's good to express yourself. It's good to have opinions. It's good to be socially active. Um, and if it costs you a few book sales or it costs you a few followers, I guess that's kind of a price to pay. Um, but I'm not just a guy, I barely watch sports, you know, so I'm not really the guy who you're going to, who's going to be able to tell you about David Price's slider, you know, um, I could tell you a lot about writing books, probably I can tell you a lot about politics. I can tell you about Michael Bublé's new song. So I, I, I think I actually am staying in my way and I think I'd be out of my lane if I were breaking down the Detroit Lions for this week. Mm -hmm. Do you think we'd ever see a non-sports book from you? Well, my dream book is to write a Tupac biography. So oh, cool. if anyone ever gives me a deal, I would love to try the Tupac biography. So who knows? Okay. I did not, I did not know that or, or expect that answer. Um, yeah. Let's see. So you also – you've written about other people in your lives. I just read the one you wrote about uh, coaching your son's basketball team. And yeah. you uh, you wrote about how the opposing coach was pressing uh, when, you're, when, you're down, uh, when he was up by 19 or whatever it was. Does that ever – I mean do people like – know who you are in your daily life if you write about everyday people does that ever get back or do you hear about that or do people kind of notice you like if you like when you're taking your coaching i assume you're in the game but are you like taking notes or just mental notes like are people do people kind of uh say like oh i hope this doesn't end up on the blog or like you know how much do you tell with stuff like that well my wife always says i hope this doesn't end up on the blog like she's yeah. like she's always like don't blog about this or you know my mom especially my mom hates when i write about her on the blog um Years ago, I wrote about my bar mitzvah, which my mom did something really bad at my bar mitzvah, and uh, I wrote about it, and it, she was livid, beyond livid, but it's such a funny story, I don't care. But um, I kind of assume the guy I'm coaching against isn't reading my blog. It'd be kind of random, you know, if, like, he happened to. And if he did, I feel like I have a fair point, so that's okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I don't know. I just, to me, life is really interesting and funny, you know, and quirky. And it's kind of cool to share that stuff and be able to share it and have get people's feedback. And the fact is I'm coaching fourth grade basketball and we were down by 19 points and the other coach in the fourth quarter started running a full court press. And I thought that was crap, you know? So I thought I'd write about it. It's kind of an event for me. The funny thing is people think I'm miserable. I have a lot of people who are like, God, your life to see, why are you so miserable? Why are you so miserable? And the truth is 
I have a great life and I'm thrilled and I love it and I really enjoy my life. To me, social media is just this like perfect place to vent and to let off steam. So it's that kind of thing. I'm not, I didn't say anything to the coach. I'm not even really mad at the coach. I just thought it was a BS move. So I, I let off my steam on, uh, on Twitter and, and my blog and now I'm good. Yeah, I'm I'm very tempted to ask the obvious follow up question, which is I'll tell what, you the story. What was the, the thing story. your mom did at the bar? If you don't, you don't have to. I can plug. Say, hey, if you want to find out, you can go read uh, his blog and check it out. But I assume you... I'm going to assume she's not going to hear this podcast, so I just say <laughs> I'm not going to give her the link to this one. She um, okay. Bar Mitzvah, 1985, Mount Kisco Holiday Inn, Mount Kisco, New York. Um, my mom. So you know how you're a 13 year old boy, you don't know anything, right? You know what yeah. I mean? Like you're just a kid. So you have no idea social, social faux pas and you know, whatever. So we had it at the Mount Kisco holiday Inn, and it's so funny. I'm telling you. And we had a cocktail hour with a like little string quartet and drinks in the hall, in the holiday Inn sort of bar. It was like a tavern. And then we had the main bar mitzvah party in the, uh, in the, in the hall right? And whatever, barroom B. So my mom sent out two levels of invitations. Some people were just invited to the cocktail hour. Other people were invited to the cocktail hour and the ball. So at the end of the cocktail hour, you have these people who had no idea there was a bigger party, seeing all these people go to this bigger party, but they were only invited to the cocktail hour. So like my neighbors who were like, you know, basically like these parents who like saw me every day, we're only invited to the cocktail hour. Meanwhile, all these other people from like our synagogue were going into the main event. And I just remember this one kid, Jimmy McDonald, basically saying to his mom, wait, why? I don't understand. Why aren't I invited to this? And uh, I always thought it was so, my mom still doesn't think she was wrong. I thought, looking back, it was like one of the tackiest things of all time. I, I don't know how we got on this, but that was, but thanks for sharing the story of your, uh, of your bar mitzvah. Sure. Um, no to, I, I mean, everybody, I think a lot of people are embarrassed by things that happen at their bar mitzvah. I don't know if I have anything specific though. Um, I always joke about the soundtrack at my bar mitzvah because it was like, uh, so mine was in, uh, 2000. So it was like, spice the, girls, no spice girls. The, I, well, we're, there is like a joke about how like the rabbi was dancing to the thong song and it was like, oh my who, God. Who let the dogs out was definitely played at my bar mitzvah, and it's just like I don't oh, know that. So whenever I hear, I see one of those lists, I'm like, oh yeah, like I remember 2000. I don't know who we were listening to. Trivia: um, Can you tell me who sang the thong song? It was Cisco, right? Oh, oh, oh very nice from your hill. Yeah, very nice. <laughs> there we go. Um, let's see. So uh, I also, so you do the uh, the quaz too, which is sort of like part of the blog, but you basically do. Uh, like an in-depth interview with one person a week. And how long have you been doing mm -hmm. that for? I've been doing that for a little more than four years. Okay, so how did that start, and uh, and why did you continue to do that? Hey, do you remember the TV show The Wonder Years, Kevin Arnold, Winnie Cooper? I do. I have uh, okay. I have older brothers, so that's like a little oh, bit okay. ahead of my time, but I always feel like I watched uh, some shows that a lot of people my age didn't see. But I, I uh, we definitely would watch The Wonder Years around the dinner table and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, very familiar. Right. So, so, yeah, great show. I grew up with The Wonder Years, and I was I have two kids who are, uh, are now 12 and 9. And, uh, you know, we were doing a lot of Wonder Years on Netflix. And one day I was like, I wonder what happened to Kevin Arnold's girlfriend, one of the girlfriends on The Wonder Years. So I Googled her and found her website. She had a website. Um, she's like a Christian speaker and blah, blah, blah. And I, I said, you know, hey, my name's Jeff and blah, blah, blah. If I, would you be up for doing a Q&A? 
she said, sure. And I sent her the questions. I just emailed them to her and she wrote it back and they were awesome. And I thought, I'm going to do this every week. And I, at first I was just going to do one to your girlfriends. I just thought that would be kind of funny. But then I just started doing, you know, I mean, I decided to call So I called it the Quaz, which nobody knows what it stands for. It stands for quasi-famous, right? Which sounds like an insult. I didn't really mean it as an insult. And I've had like, I have like Michael Dukakis who ran for president. I had John Oates from Holland Oates. I had Sean Green. I've had a lot of political people, a lot of sports people. And I just, uh, I kind of view it as my chance to ask people questions that I want to ask. You know, it has nothing to do with like what's the right question, technically the right question. It's just what would I want to ask someone? And that's all it is. And it's like this chance to do it. It's kind of good response. I'm up to 236 straight weeks. It's kind of like my, uh, my DiMaggio hitting streak, the quad streak. <laughs> And it's uh, so how, I mean, how much time does that take to put together? Is it just you send questions and they send answers or is there a little bit of more of a back and forth if somebody says something surprising or interesting? Yeah, sometimes I'll go back with something. It's a uh, it doesn't take that much time. It's mainly like coming up with the questions is kind of a pain. Sometimes people want to do it on the phone, which I generally hate just because I don't have time. I'm not getting paid to do it. Um, sometimes they send back stuff that's terrible. Like it's too short. I've, you know, a lot of, I've had about. 15 and never got returned or replied, you know, that really is annoying. Um, I don't know. It gives me something to look forward to every week. You know, I always enjoy posting them. I kind of measure my life by where I was when I did different clauses. So it's kind of cool. Nice. So, do, I mean, do you have backups in place then in case uh, just to keep the Yeah, I always have a backlog. Yeah. Yeah, there's always a backlog of four or five sitting around. Okay. So then the last sort of bigger topic, because you worked at Sports Illustrated, which I don't think I said at the top, I actually work there now in your old stomping grounds. Um, so what, what years were you there? I was at SI from 96 to 2002 or three, two or three. Okay. One, no, 2003. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so in that time, what was your favorite thing about working at SI? It was a dream. I mean, it was like, I was covering major league baseball for sports illustrated. You know, that was what I grew up wanting to do. I was sitting there with Tom Verducci watching that guy, you know, and, and learning how to sort of you know, just cover baseball. And there you are. All of a sudden, you're out World Series. You're out All-Star Games. You're sitting talking one-on-one with Gary Sheffield in the dugout or Sean Green or whoever. I mean, it was just like this. And the travel. You know, I was 20-something years old traveling across. You used to be able to stay when you worked at SI. You could stay at any hotel, I think, under $400 a night. And per diem was awesome. It was just like I was 28 years old, we'll just say, covering Major League Baseball for Sports Illustrated. It was as cool as it could have been. It lived up to everything I would want it to be. It was awesome, purely awesome. And so, uh, I mean, what was what was it like being at SI in those days? You know, I think the the media landscape has changed a lot, but just uh, you know, sort of the atmosphere and the people you worked with. What was it like being there and and writing your stories and seeing the magazine come out every week? Well, it was, it was a thrill. First of all, second of all, it's the smartest people I've ever worked with. You know, I came from a newspaper and I, I worked with a national Tennessean first, and uh, Tennessean was great. Loved it. And I got to SI and I just thought, man, it is so, I'm out of my league here. It is so smart. You know, people are so quick and they're witty. And I'd laugh at jokes I didn't understand just because I didn't want to look dumb. You know, it was just, it was just really impressive. And you got edited. I hated the editing and you got edited to death. You know, you have seven people editing your copy. Um, you know, they were really, I had an editor named Mike Bevins who used, used to beat the crap out of me, you know, who, my, my favorite story from that time is uh, I did a profile actually of Barry Bonds way before I wrote a book on him. And I was really proud because I got him to talk and he was not talking to SI, but he talked to me. And I wrote this profile of him. And uh, the next morning I was taking the, the taxi to the airport and the cell phone rings. 
it's an editor, Mike Bevan, and he goes, Pearl, he's a real gruff guy. He goes, Pearlman, if we wanted to give Barry Bonds a blowjob, we could have brought him to New York. You need to rewrite this thing. <laughs> and it was like crushing. But but the editing was like, it was like, it was just high level. You know, it was like working around really high level people who were really good at what they did, really knew sports and really knew writing. And you would have a, whatever, a cover story or just a, there was not, every story I wrote, you know, I would rush to see the magazine. I would buy the magazine on the newsstand to see my byline in Sports Illustrated. That's how much it meant to me. And was that uh, before, I don't even know, when was our website launched? So is, is this was all just print uh, or was stuff being put online at the time in the early 2000s? No, the site started when I was there. In fact, I, I, I think I wrote one of the first whatever pieces to go up, original pieces to go up. So the site started when I was there. And it was basically like, it was CNNSI. And it was basically like, yeah, anyone write anything for the web, we'll throw it up. And they would basically throw anything up. So, yeah, early on. So, but for the most part, when you started, it was really, you just had your, were you writing every week for the magazine? Or what were your kind of, were you During on baseball tight season. deadline? Or would you turn stuff in ahead and say, okay, this is going to be in in a, in a couple of weeks or whatever? Uh, it would be both. But it was, oh yeah, there was no web. So you weren't really thinking about the web. You were there to write for the magazine. And the yeah. other thing is, you know, like, you were, if you were for SI, not because of anything I did, you were kind of a man. Like you would show up in Toronto to do a profile of Carlos Delgado. It was how much time do you need with Carlos? Right? I was sort of white. You guys want to go to dinner? You know, oh, how much time do you need with so-and-so? What can we get you? How many days are you going to come for? Do you need anything? Blah, blah, blah. Like it was, you know, print matters and SI really mattered. So it was kind of, I feel like I was there for the last throws of print being king, you know? Um, and I'm glad I was there for that because, because I still love the magazine. I still get the magazine. I still read it as a print publication. Uh, yeah, so. So anything else uh, that happened or stories or things that were possible then that you think just because of the way the world has changed or the media has changed just would not be the case or would not be able to happen today? Well, I mean, the thing is they, they, you spent a lot more money on print back then. So you had time to work on stories. Um, your resources, you know, they would fly, you know, for example, I used to write the inside baseball column. It was me and Steve Canella and we would write the inside baseball column and we would have a meeting on whatever day it was. And it would be, if I was doing, let's say an item, just an item about Mike Sweeney on the Royals. And then I was going to do another item on Jeff Kent. They'd be like, all right, so fly out to Kansas city, sit down with Mike Sweeney, then fly to San Francisco, spend a few t days there, then come home. And it was a, a, you wouldn't even think about it. That's what you did. Nowadays, it would be, all right, get Sweeney on the phone, get Kent on the phone. Maybe they're coming to New York in a few weeks. You can do it then. But it's just a different, you know, money was no object when I was at SI, and it made it pretty sweet. I mean, the year before I got there, in 96, early in 96, they flew the entire staff to the Atlanta Olympics as a retreat. The entire magazine staff. They would never do that now. So uh, last couple questions, just because you said you still get SI and read it. I'm just curious, what else do you read and, and how much, uh, I mean, how much time do you have? It, I know you're, I mean, 600 interviews just feels like such a colossal uh, way to take up all of your time. But how much do you follow just the rest of sports media and what else are you out there reading and watching and paying attention to? Um, I don't follow it that closely. I read the New York Times every day. Um, I read SI, I get Esquire. Uh, you know, I go, I'll go to CNN.com, I'll go to FoxNews.com, I go to MSNBC.com. You know, I try to check out all the news sites. Um, I liked Grantland. 
I wasn't addicted to Grantland, but I really liked Grantland, and I was sad to see it go, like really sad to see it go. Uh, I used to go to SI.com all the time, but the pop-ups drive me crazy, just being honest. Um, I used to love Andrew Sullivan, had a really great political website, but he stopped it. So uh, I used to subscribe to Rolling Stone, but I stopped it. The truth of the matter is when you're writing a book, the number one thing you're reading is about the subject you're writing. So when people say to me, oh, what books have you read lately? It's like, ah, you know, the Green Bay Packers handbook and, you know, Aaron Rodgers, my story, you know, stuff like that. Is it weird to then move on to the next topic? Like, do you still, if there's something in the news about, uh, or something comes out about Walter Payton, do you kind of take a peek or are you, at, is it just like you totally move on and, and go on to the next topic when you're done and consume yourself with that? Uh, you move on, but you always have an emotional connection. Like if I ever see Walter, I mean, my son has a Walter Payton jersey. In fact, my son has a Brett Favre jersey. There's a picture of Walter Payton hanging in my son's, uh, in my son's room. You know, um, you know, uh, Linda Rambis, Kurt Rambis' wife with the Lakers, is, has remained a good friend. You know, um, so you, you maintain little ties, but kind of emotionally you move on to the next project. You have to. And so do you have, I know you mentioned the Tupac book, but do you have oh. sort of a checklist of ideas of not like formal plans, but just like a list of maybe five, ten things where you say, oh, I, could, I think I could write a book about this someday? Um, well, I already have I, the the Favre deal is a two book deal. So the book I'm doing after this is actually, a, it's my first real passion project. And it's a, uh, there's a league in the 1980s called the USFL, the United States football league. And it launched a ton of stars, Herschel Walker, Doug Flutie, Jim Kelly, Reggie White, Steve Young, on and on and on. And it was my, Donald Trump was the owner of the New Jersey team. And, uh, it was a real sort of, when I was a kid, I loved the USFL. So, I basically said, I'll write far, but I also want to write the USFL. So my next book is a USFL biography. Okay. So you're, but are you able to work on those two at the same time or is it totally just no, off to the side? Never. And then when you're, yeah. Yeah. When I'm so, done with this, I go so right you've into got the that. So you, pl you basically planned out four or five years of your life and, and said, okay, I'll do one and then the next. Exactly. Do That's you, uh, could you see yourself writing for, uh, like a website, if somebody came after you and said, hey, write for us for the web or, or do this or whatever in the meantime while you're working on books, could you see yourself doing that? Or are you at this point just books are your thing and what you like to do and, and that's where you spend your time? Or even like TV work because, you know, a ton of people do that. Could you see yourself doing stuff like that at the same time or are you just focused on this one thing? Well, I have a uh, – I, I have kind of a deal with Bleacher Report and uh... – I was doing a monthly long-form feature for them, and I'm going to resume that at the start of next year. Um, okay. I just took off a solid amount of time at the end because uh, because of uh, the intensity of the book. But uh, I really like what Bleach Report is doing, I have to say. They're very cool about long-form stories, and it's uh, it's pretty refreshing. So, uh, yeah, I do that. I don't, I'm not a really, – I don't view myself as much of a TV guy. It's never been an interest of mine. Um, but I really love – I love writing, so, you know, sure. Okay. Cool. Well, thanks so much. We're uh, getting close to the end here. I want to wrap this up. Uh, I just want to say thanks. This was a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoy your work and, and reading it. And uh, it was cool to hear a little bit more about how you put it together and some of the things that you're up to. So thanks for making the time. All right, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you can uh, follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Perlman. Uh, check out his website, read his blog, read the quads, order the books. Uh, I think those are all the plugs. Anything else?
Uh, no, that's pretty much it. That's, that's it. Me. Okay. Well, you can follow you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mitch Goldich. If you enjoyed the podcast, and hopefully if you made it all the way to the end here, uh, you can search for it and subscribe on iTunes right now. It's called the Mitch Goldich Podcast, so that's what you search. Uh, although it'll later, I guess, be renamed the Jeff Perlman Will Kick Your Ass Podcast, but not quite yet. Uh, feel free to give it a rating or a review. I also have a new Facebook page since my last episode with just links to my work, no other clutter. So feel free to search for me on Facebook. Visit my website, MitchGoldich.com. And thanks again to Jeff, and thanks all of you for listening. Talk to you later.